The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue to look at the subject of Israel today. I've entitled the message, The Olive Tree and True Israel. Now, if you remember our last study, we looked at the subject of who is Israel. And I said that Romans 9 through 11 is a theodicy. You remember what a theodicy is? Theodicy is a vindication or a defense of God. Now, here's the problem that Romans 9 through 11 deals with. The Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, is filled with promises that God made to Israel. The nation was uniquely chosen by God to be blessed and to be a source of blessing to the whole world. But they became proud, and they missed the true value, the true end of all that they had, which was the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Christ to atone for their sins, and they rejected their own Messiah. Now, throughout his teaching, Paul was implying that Israel, they were no longer the people of God. Paul was saying that Israel was no longer blessed, but they were, in fact, now cursed. So the question arose, if God's chosen people are now cursed, had God gone back on His promises? Has He rejected His chosen people? And the question arose, was Israel really cursed or was Paul just bitter because of all the beatings he'd received from the hand of the leaders of Israel? No, because it wasn't just Paul. Yeshua told the Jewish leaders that because of their rejection of him, that the kingdom of God would be taken from them. Now, in light of all this, the question is, has God's plan changed? Is Israel's rejection as a nation, a going back on His Word. Has God broken His promise to Israel? The Jews would say, well, either Yeshua is not the true Messiah, because He cursed and rejected God's people, or the Word of God is proven false. So God's justice and His righteousness are being called into question. So in Romans 9-11, through Paul gives his theodicy. Paul shows his readers, which would be the first century Roman believers, and us today, in these chapters that Israel's rejection is not at all inconsistent with the promises of God. We looked last week at Romans 9, 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, so he's starting this theology saying, no, the word of God hasn't failed. They think that. They think the promises have gone amiss. He says, no, that hasn't happened. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Paul is telling him the reality is there's two Israels. You have physical, national Israel, the nation, and then you have in that nation true Israelites. And Paul teaches that God's promise haven't failed because God never promised unconditionally to each offspring of Abraham covenant blessings. God never intended that all the nation would be redeemed. Within national Israel is true Israel, or spiritual Israel. So one could be a physical Israelite without being a true Israelite. The promises were to true Israel, not to national Israel. True Israel is Yeshua, as we saw last time, and all who are joined to Him by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Now, notice what Paul says in chapter 11. I asked then, has God rejected His people? See, this is the question. This is what they're saying. God is he's not fulfilling His promises. He's turned His back on His people. Well, we have to ask here, who are His people? Many say that this is referring to the nation Israel, But this is a reference to the remnant, to true Israel that is within the nation Israel. He says in verse 5, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now in Paul's day, there was this remnant. Yahweh had not and never will reject His people. His people are all who are trusting Yeshua and Yeshua alone for their salvation. 
Verse 7 says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, which Israel is he talking about here? He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. This is national or physical Israel. But he says, the elect obtained it. Now, who are the elect? Well, that's the true Israel. So notice that he doesn't say his people failed to obtain it. His people are the elect, and they have obtained it, but physical Israel has not. In verse 11, he says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, it's really strange, but we see here that the unbelief of Israel was ordained to promote the salvation of the Gentiles, which in turn promotes Jewish jealousy that leads to their salvation. So I think we could think of it like this. Uh, Israel's sin was to lead to her salvation, just like the sin of Joseph's brothers led to their salvation from famine. When you think of that story and you think what happened, their sin brought them to a place where God took care of them. Very strange. Now look at Romans eleven sixteen. If the dough offered as fur truce is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, Paul is quoting here from Numbers 15 that calls for offering the first of one's dough up to Yahweh as a representative of the whole to express confidence that the Lord is going to is not finished with the Jews. Now, what Paul implies is that if God set apart the patriarchs as the first piece of dough or as the root, he's not finished showing mercy to the descendants. The point of this verse is that the whole is sanctified by the part. Now, on Romans eleven sixteen, John Piper writes this. God has a future for corporate Israel. That is a position probably held by most of the church. Someday, the whole lump will be holy, and someday the tree will include an entire generation of Jewish branches. Now, the problem with what Piper says here is that it goes against everything Paul teaches in Romans 9 through 11. See, Paul said they are not all Israel that are from Israel. They're not all children, he says, because they're Abraham's descendants. And it's not the children of the flesh, he says, who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. He said it wasn't Isaac. He said it was Isaac, not Ishmael. And it was through Jacob, not Esau. So he's making these distinctions. Now, to prove Piper wrong, Paul quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Now, please hang on to what Paul says here. It is the remnant, he says, that's going to be saved. Not every Israelite will be saved, but all of the remnant will be. Now, verse 16 serves as a transition between verse 11 through 15 and 17 through 24. In verse 16, he talked about the root and the branches, and now he uses that analogy, and he says in verse 17 and 18, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Now, he uses the analogy here of the olive tree. The olive tree is used as a symbol of Israel. For example, in Hosea 14, 5, and 6, it says, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Now, most translations have olive tree here. The Hebrew word zayit, Brown says, is use of olive, olive tree. And he said most translations translate this as olive tree. They see Israel is the olive tree. We'll look at what Jeremiah has to say about the olive tree in, in a little bit here. But for now, let's look at a little olive treeology if you will. The olive tree 
has all through history been one of the most characteristics, most valued, and most useful trees in Israel. Olive trees are famous for their longevity and fruitfulness. This tree lasts for centuries. It's prized for its fruit and it's prized for its wood. The olive tree, it's an evergreen tree that usually gets to be about 16 feet high. The young tree has a smooth silver gray bark. This is a young tree in the picture here. But as it gets older, the trunk gets stout and knobby. You can see that that has some age on it, all right? It has numerous branches that form a dense, shady tree. The tree has a really large root system that can get water even in very dry conditions. Now, many olive trees in the groves around the Mediterranean are said to be hundreds of years old. Some people claim that there's trees there that are over 2,000 years old. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, these trees do last for a long time. The olive is an important article in the diet of Israel. Some are gathered green and they pickle them in brine after slight bruising. Others, the black olives are gathered and they're, uh, when they get really ripe. And then they're either packed in salt or in brine. In both cases, the salt mod- mod- modifies, I knew I could get that out if I tried, modifies the bitter taste. And they're usually just eaten with bread. Now, more important commercially, though, is the oil. And this is sometimes extracted in even a primitive way. We're just crushing a few berries by the, in a hollow stone. We'll get them some oil from the olives. Now, in Bible times, and even today, it was very common to graft an olive tree. A branch from a good olive tree was taken, and it was grafted into a wild olive tree. When the grafting process on an olive tree is started, The olive tree is cut down almost to nothing. You just basically leave a stump there. There's just kind of root stock left. The wild olive tree is cut down because it doesn't produce good fruit. But the good cultivated olive tree does produce good fruit. So wild trees, would they grow up and they're taking up space with their root system that could be used for a good tree. So to keep from having to just cut those trees down and try to get rid of them, they would just cut them down and they would graft them with branches from a good tree. And the good branch would then produce fruit while getting nourishment from the wild root system. And several branches would be grafted onto a wild olive tree. I do this in my own yard, not with olive trees, but I have a tree out back that kind of gets over really, tries to move over the pool. I just cut it down at about three feet high. And the next year, it just you know, shoots out and grows back up, and it's a nice little tree, and I'll let it go for several years, and I'll cut it back down, and we'll go through that again. I'm not grafting it, but it, you, know, you cut it down. As long as that root system's there, it's going to come back. Now, if you take a nectarine tree and you graft into it a lemon branch, what grows from that branch from then on? Lemons or nectarines? What? Lemons. Lemons. Listen, the fruit is determined by the branch. Whatever branch you graft into a tree, it's going to grow that type of fruit, whatever that branch was. The nectarine tree will grow lemons on a lemon branch. It'll grow plums on a plum branch and so on. All right, keep that in mind now. The fruit comes from the branch. Romans eleven seventeen says, But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Now, so these branches, these wild branches are sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree. So we need to stop and think here a minute. Who or what is the root? What is the root of this tree? What's this represent? N.T. Wright states this, and I like the way he says this. He says, the Messiah, most probably, in other words, not really sure about this, but this would be my strong guess, is the root through whom the tree now gets his life. Now, I have a problem with this, because if Messiah is the root, then we Gentiles are disassociated from Israel and from the Hebrew roots. I would say that the root is Abraham and the promises that Yahweh made to him. 
Look at Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Go back to your roots. Where did you come from? What was your beginning? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So Abraham was one when God called him. And from this comes the nation. So it all goes back to Abraham. Now notice what Paul says later in Romans. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So Christ came as a minister to confirm the saving promises that God made to the patriarchs. The verb confirm here is a legal term denoting the certainty with which the promises are going to be fulfilled. Now this verse, along with Romans 9, 6, affirms that the Word of God has not failed, but stands invincible. Romans 9, 6 says, It is not as though the Word of God has failed. And he says here, Christ has, become, has come to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The words of God, the promises of God, stand confirmed. He says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. It's not just for the Jews to receive God's mercy, but Gentiles also. Now, in verses 9 through 12, Paul emphasizes the salvation of the Gentiles. The Gentiles had no direct promises. All their promises came through Israel. So important, people, that we understand that. So why bring up the patriarchs from the past? Well, for one simple reason. God gave them gospel promises, and He linked the promises to them. Now, Tom Holland writes this in his book on Romans. He says, Paul saw its root to represent the promises made to Abraham and its branches to represent his spiritual offspring, believing Jews and Gentiles who are justified and made holy by the same faith as their father. So, the root of the olive tree is the Abraham, Abrahamic promises, the promises that God made to Abraham. That's what those roots represent. And then we have the tree that comes up, those who are believing in those promises. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This verse should, these verses should be pretty familiar to you by now. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. He wasn't only to be blessed, he was going to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's pretty important when you realize what happened in Genesis 11, to Tower of Babel. God dispersed the nations, gave them over to the lesser God, said, I'm done. He chooses Abraham, but right away he says, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless those people that I just rejected. Now, here's what I have to ask, and here's what you got to think through with these passages. Do you see any ifs in God's word to Abraham here? What I want you to see here is this is not an agreement. This is a promise. And you will read in vain Genesis 12 to 15 to find anywhere where God says, Abraham, if you do this, I'll do that. In other words, there's no conditions here. To understand that this is a one-sided covenant, let's look at Genesis 15. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let me back up a minute here. God takes Abraham outside, his tent, and it shows him the night sky just filled with stars. And unless you've ever been far away from a city and been able to see the night sky, you don't have a clue what's going on here. I mean, it's, you know, the our modern cities and all the lights, they just kind of adulterate, the, diffuse what's going on up there. But when we go out into the mountains, we were in a cabin one night sitting out on the porch at night, and it's just unbelievable, the stars in the sky. Now, an important question that we need to ask here is this. He says, so shall your offspring be. What does that refer to? What's he talking about here? Is this 
quantitative, you'll be as numerous as the stars. That's how many, most people will just take that. So shall your offspring be. You, you just have a whole lot of them. But I think it's also qualitative. You'll be like the stars. See, I think it refers to both of these here. And this is what theologians call theosis. You ever heard of theosis? Theosis is basically deification. In other words, we're to be like the divine host, part of Yahweh's celestial family. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. Now notice what Daniel says here. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Who are those who shine brightly like stars? Well, this is astral language to speak of believers. The ancients viewed the stars as deities. We see this in Job 38.7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Here, stars and sons of God are synonymous. So Daniel is saying that believers in the resurrection will be like the sons of God. We'll be like the stars. Well, this is what Yahweh promised Abraham in Genesis 15. He brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven, number the stars. Now, the word number here is from the Hebrew safar, which can mean intensively to recount, that is to celebrate, to show forth, to speak, to talk, to tell. It comes from a root that means a book or a scroll. The Septuagint word here, count, is arithmio, and it means reckon up. So arrhythmia is much wider than count and can mean to enumerate or to reckon. So it's possible that what Yahweh said to Abram was not count the stars. See if we can figure out how many there are up there. But recount or tell the stars. In other words, there was a story in those stars and Yahweh wanted Abraham to take note of it. There was something about this story in the stars that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as right. What did he believe? He says, number the stars and then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed him. What, he believed he's going to have a lot of dependents and because of that God made him righteous? What did Abraham believe? Was it that he's just going to have a bunch of descendants? Or was he believing the message of redemption that was told in the constellations? Paul tells us that Abraham had the gospel preached to him in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Was the gospel told in the stars. Whatever Abraham believed, it caused him to be counted as righteous. Now, Yahweh evidently showed Abraham that one of his descendants would redeem man from the curse and satisfy the justice of God. He seems to have known the gospel. He may have seen it in the stars. If the gospel was told in the constellations, and we've talked about this before, how are men supposed to know the meaning of the constellations? How would anybody understand what those things are? I mean, it's, just, it's the same as reading. You give someone who never read a book and you say, hey, look at this. It doesn't mean anything to them. They don't get anything out of it. You have to be taught how to read. And the same thing, you can't look up in the night sky and say, oh, look, there's a bull. You see that? Would you look up there and say, that looks like a bull? How do you get a bull out of that? I'm like, okay, got a good imagination there, right? It's like reading a book. It's something that has to be learned. The constellations themselves have been known from antiquity. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages, which is really interesting. For instance, the constellation Virgo, you're all familiar with that, means virgin, is referred to as Bethula in Hebrew, Parthenos in Greek, Kenya in Hindi, all which mean virgin. This indicates that prior knowledge of the names of the stars and constellations prior to the confusion of the language at Babel 
They knew this. This knowledge may have come down from Noah or even back as far as Adam. The star and constellation names have been handed down from antiquity. I don't care where you go, different languages, people know, they call them different names, but they have the same meaning. So there's a message there in these stars. And notice what Yahweh promises Abram. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh Lord, Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring to me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, Abraham's out of this, okay? He's just seeing this. He's watching this. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, it says, Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham. This literally reads, Yahweh cut a covenant. And here's where we see that Yahweh, he cuts this covenant with Abraham. He cut it in a way that was familiar to the people of the ancient Near East. Not so familiar to us. We don't understand covenants, this, the, the way they did this. But they would take a heifer, they would take a ram, they would take a goat, and they would split the animal in half. And then they'd lay the halves opposite each other on an incline, like on the side of a hill where the valley came down, so that the blood would flow down and puddle in the very bottom of this little ravine-like. And then the stronger of the two people making this covenant would go walk first, and he would walk through the pieces. He'd walk through the blood, and the blood would splash up on his ankles and on his legs. And here's the symbol, symbolism. As you walk through these pieces that are cut in half, laying there, you're saying, if I fail to keep this covenant, may this happen to me. All right? And this is, there's a connection here with our wedding ceremony and you got the bride's people on one side and the groom's on the other and you're making covenants and these are witnesses to the covenant. Uh, be great to do a wedding service, drag an animal up there, cut it in half and lay it there and you know have the couple pass through the pieces and you violate this covenant, may this happen to you. I don't think that would go over too big. Peter would probably have a little bit of a problem with that, but <clears throat> that was the symbolism here, all right? And after the first person would walk through, then the weaker of the two making the covenant would walk through the blood with the same symbolism. If I fail to keep the covenant, this is what happens to me. Well, in this covenant, Abraham is either asleep or perhaps still groggy from the deep sleep he had been under, and he sees Yahweh do an amazing thing. He passes through the animal parts all by himself while Abraham watches on the sidelines. Yahweh is in this text represented by the smoking oven and the burning torch that passes through the animal parts by himself as Abraham watched. Yahweh made a covenant. Yahweh showed that this was a unilateral covenant. Abraham never signed the covenant because Yahweh signed it for both of them. Therefore, the certainty of the covenant that Yahweh makes with Abraham is based on who Yahweh is not on who Abram is or what Abram does. This covenant cannot fail because Yahweh cannot fail. Abram cannot break a covenant that he never signed. So I see the root 
as Abraham and the unilateral covenant that Yahweh made with him. Verse 17 says, If some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. All right, so we talked about the root. What is the tree? Who or what is the olive tree here? Now, some commentators say that the olive tree is equivalent to physical ethnic Israel. But we see that many of ethnic Israel have been broken off because of their unbelief. And believing Gentiles have been grafted into the olive tree. So I think it's better to see the olive tree as the spiritual people of Yahweh, believers, made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So the root is the covenant promises that God made to Abram. And the tree is the true believers in every age who embrace those covenant promises. He says, if some of the branches were broken off. I think Paul here has Jeremiah's description in mind by which he warned the house of Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 11, 16 and 17. Yahweh, Yahweh once called you a green olive tree. Beautiful, with good fruit. Now watch what he says here. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. God's going to burn up. He's going to destroy this tree. Yahweh of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Now, notice in our text that the Jews are not, are not cut off entirely. He says some of the branches were broken off. A remnant is going to be saved. Now, some here is kind of an understatement, okay? Because we realize the majority of the Jews failed to believe. Those of ethnic Israel who did not believe that Yeshua was Messiah, they were broken off. So, the only thing in this tree is believers. Unbelievers were broken off, taken away. Believers were grafted in. The remnant is receiving the promises of Abraham. The Gentiles are grafted in among them. Now, what's interesting here, what do you see about this verse that doesn't seem to make sense in light of what we talked about already about grafting and the grafting process? If some of the branches are broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, you're grafted in among the others and now you're partaking. If the branch is a wild olive shoot, what's it going to produce? Wild olives, right? So that doesn't sound right here. And people say, Paul didn't understand the way grafting takes place. Okay? Because it's only possible to graft a cultivated shoot into a wild stock, not a wild shoot into a cultivated stock. Well, instead of grafting a good branch into a bad tree, God took a bad branch, all right, and he grafted it into a good tree. And God has done that which is highly unnatural. This was opposite of the way the first century people grafted olive trees. God had a good tree with a good root system. You, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. So following Paul's analogy here, if we, a wild olive branch, were grafted into the rich cultivated olive tree, the fruit that would come from us would be wild olives. They'd be bitter. They'd be shriveled. That what we're already producing when we're in the bad olive tree. But God does a miracle with us, and He changes us so that the fruit that comes forth is the fruit of the Spirit, and we produce the good olives. Good, fat fruit. Good olives from our lives. Now, notice that the Gentiles didn't grasp themselves in here, or into the tree. That is, into the family of God. Just as the Lord chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, and as He chose Jacob instead of Esau... He chose you to graft you contrary to nature. This is how nature works, but God did it contrary to nature. He took the wild branch and put it in a cultivated tree. You know, Paul loves to bring up this doctrine of sovereign election. He chose you. He put you in that tree. Now, we've talked about the Hebrew roots movement before. A question, I think, was asked a couple weeks ago about the Messianic movement. Well, there's a belief in the Hebrew Roots Messianic movement that when one believes in Yeshua, they become grafted into the tree of Israel. Okay? Actually, 
becoming Israel and therefore obligating those believers to observe Israel's Mosaic Covenant law. So they got this backwards. This tree is not national. This tree is spiritual. The law is fulfilled in Christ, and we keep all the law's requirements in Yeshua. So the tree that he's talking about here is not a national Israel tree. He says, and now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So Gentile believers, we share with the Jews what comes from the root. The word share here is from the Greek word soon koinonos, which means shares or fellowshippers together with them in the rich root of the olive tree, with them as a reference to believing Jews. So you have the promises that God gave, the Abrahamic promises, and then that tree is believing Gentiles, it's believing Jews. Unbelieving Jews have been broken off from that tree. They're gone. Then Gentiles, believing Gentiles were grafted in. So this is a spiritual tree. It's not a national tree. This is the church. This is the true Israel. Now, we believers become partakers of the rich root of the olive trees. Pejoratively, many call this replacement theology. All right? But we did not replace Israel. We became partakers with the remnant in the Abrahamic covenant. All right? In other words, God didn't replace the Hebrew tree with the Gentile tree. I'm going to get rid of the Hebrews, just rip that tree out, get rid of it. Let me go over and plant a new tree here. He didn't do that. He grafted us into the Hebrew tree. This is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. All right? The church is the fulfillment of all the promises Yahweh made to Israel because we're part of that tree. The root now supports two types of branches, cultivated and wild, and together there's just one tree, a spiritual tree. Now, S.L. Johnson, who is a dispensationalist, and they don't believe this at all, says this. He says, it is clear from Paul's language that he conceives of the Gentiles as participating in Israel's blessing. Yes, exactly. You got it, right? Now, the Greek word here for nourishing is piotes, and Cranefield, Murray, Schreiner, all see this as appositional here, designating the electing grace of God. In other words, Yahweh had chosen them to share in the elective promises that were given to the root. All right, so Paul's teaching that Gentiles now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. In verse 18, he says, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root. The root supports you. See, the grafted shoot is sharing the same rising sap as the remaining original branches. The Gentiles are totally dependent on the covenant which God entered into with Abram. And the promises made to him. Faith in Christ is the link with the promises that God made to Abraham. Faith unites us to the nourishing root of the olive tree, the promises of God. The Jewish root supports you, not the other way around. Being a Christian means becoming a true Jew, a child of Abraham. Being a Christian means finding your ancestry in Abram and his offspring and the promises that were given. Now, Christian theologians view Pentecost as the birth of the church, right? And there's really no argument there. Everybody agrees. Yes, Pentecost, the birth of the church. All right, so think through this with me, okay? What happened to Pentecost? The first sermon to be preached in the infant church was delivered by Peter, a Jew right, to a large crowd of Israelites in the Jewish temple, in the city of Jerusalem, on the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. And the sermon was about a Jewish Messiah. Now, in this sermon, 12 of the 23 verses are direct quotation from the Jewish scriptures. Peter's message is rooted in the prophecies of the Tanakh, prophecies given to Israel, Peter speaks of God's coming judgment on Israel and calls on the men of Israel to repent. What does this tell us about the church? 
Its roots are Hebrew. It's all Jewish. It, it began, you know, this is what just blows my mind when people like Hagee says, you know, the church in Israel, they're totally separate. They don't have anything to connect. Well, the church for 10 years was nothing but Jews, nothing but Israelites. They're, they're just getting the fulfillment of their promises. And then the Gentiles are getting grafted into those promises. The roots of this church, people, are Hebrew. And I think it's imperative that we as believers understand our Hebrew roots if we're going to understand the Scriptures. Because Christians today, they come to Christ, they come to the Bible, they jump in the New Testament and they try to learn some things and they've missed the whole history and the root system of what this is all about. And that's why they get so confused on terminology. That they read in there. They read of the sun and the moon and the stars falling from the sky and they think, oh, that's the end of the world. You wouldn't think that if you knew the Bible, if you knew the Hebrew root system and you knew what that was talking about. We have to understand the first three quarters of our Bible because everything in the New Testament comes out of the promises that were made there. So important. In the Bible, the olive tree is a picture of God's people. Is spiritual people. Israel is God's olive tree. Isaiah said this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Keep that in mind. The shoot's coming out of the stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. This is a messianic prophecy. And Yeshua is the shoot out of Jesse's stump. So this predicts that out of the lineage of David would come Messiah. So believers, you and I, Gentile believers, have been grafted into God's olive tree. God didn't get upset with Israel and go out and plant a new tree, as dispensationalism teaches. He grafted us into Israel through Yeshua, who is true Israel. Look at what Yeshua said in John 15, 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. What does that initially say to you? If Yeshua says he's the true vine, what's he implying? There's another vine that's not true, right? He's contrasting himself with a vine that wasn't true. The word true is from the Greek alethanos, which means opposite to what is imperfect, defective, frail, uncertain. The word alethanos is used in John to mean real or genuine. So who or what is the vine that was not true? It was the old covenant Israel. The vine was a symbol of Israel. We saw that in our last study of Israel in Isaiah chapter 5. God's vineyard is Israel, the covenant people. Now, Yeshua identifies himself here not as Judah or Israel, as the genuine true vine, but himself. He's saying, ah, it's not Israel, it's not Judah, it's me, I'm the vine. Christ is the vine, and all who believe in him are now part of the true vine and members of the new Israel, the new covenant church. Now, the significance of the claim here to be the true vine is that Yeshua viewed himself as the fulfillment of Israel. Yeshua was the true Israel, and Yahweh's followers were the true Israelites. This claim is an exclusive claim. It prohibits and denies the existence of any valid and viable alternative. That vine that was God's is no longer the vine. Yeshua is the true vine. Believers, here's what we have to understand. We cannot exist without our Jewish roots. All right, we're grafted into that tree. Without those roots, the tree's dead. We don't make it. And you cannot exist independently of Yeshua, nor can you exist independently of your Jewish roots. Because Yeshua is not a tree, He's a shoot out of a tree, and the tree is Israel. Believers, our roots are Jewish. And if we're to understand Christianity, we need to understand our Hebrew roots, which means we need to learn that first three quarters of the Bible. 
People just think that that's over, that's done, we don't need to care with that. Yes, you'll care a lot. You'll learn a lot about God's ways, you'll learn about God's dealings, you'll learn uh, the Israel customs and how they use words and what they mean by them, and it's just going to enlighten you and teach you as you come to the New Testament. So, bottom line here, people, the church is the true Israel of God. We inherit all the promises that God made to true Israel. Gentiles are dependent on the promises made by Yahweh to the Jews. So that's why in, the, in this text, Paul is saying, listen, don't, don't become proud. You know, God can break you off. He broke them off. You are part of the tree. You made, God has taken you and placed you in that tree. And so we partake of those blessings. I think if, you know, dispensationalism understood this whole olive tree analogy, uh, maybe it'd make a difference in their theology. All right, there's no other tree. God planted one tree. He took the bad branches out of that tree. He grafted believers, Gentile believers, into that tree. And there's just one spiritual tree with one spiritual root system. And those promises all go back to Abraham and what God made with him. And that was, I think, important for us to understand. It was a unilateral covenant, which means God's going to keep it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word again, Lord. I pray that you would help us to see what you're teaching here and help us to realize, Lord, the depth of what we believe goes all the way back, Lord, all the way back to Abraham and the promises you made and the gospel that you preached to him. And help us, Lord, to realize how rich our root system is. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us. Thank you for grafting us in contrary to nature to a good root system. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your teaching to us. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Jeff? I assume, uh, I mean, would you assume that N.T. Uh, Wright's comment about the root being the Messiah would probably be related to John 15, Christ's saying he's divine? And um, yeah, Jeff's question is, do, do I think that N.T. Wright, of course, I don't know what N.T. Wright thinks, but he more be connecting that, you know, Yeshua calling himself divine on John 15. So, uh, yeah, he could, but, you know, the thing that to me was important there, he wasn't you know, being de- dogmatic about it, he wasn't being definite. He says, you know, I, I think this is the way it goes, so, uh, you know, maybe. But, but again, I, I think if you go just go back to Yeshua, then you miss the roots. You know, and he's not the tree, he's the shoot of the tree. Um, Okay, I got a question here. Would it be more accurate to say that the church was not born at Pentecost, but rather it was empowered at that time? This fits the idea that we have Hebrew roots that far predate Pentecost. Um, No, I really think Pentecost was the birth of the church. You know, and that's important because it happened on the feast day of Pentecost. And you go back to the first Pentecost, Israel received the law. You go to the new Pentecost, and 3,000 people were killed because of disobedience. You go to the new Pentecost, 3,000 believers were saved. And that's where the church began. That's where, you know, the new covenant had its beginning. Yes, the roots were there, but now the Spirit had come, and now the new covenant was in effect because the new covenant couldn't go into effect until Christ came and died for that. So I, I do agree with most people in the church that uh, that it goes back there. Okay. Was the star's knowledge from Enoch's experience in heaven or would it have come from the watchers? Um, that's a good question. I, don't, I really think it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and God teaching them about that and then their descendants and teaching Noah and I think it was just a teaching experience the watchers could have definitely had something to do with that been involved in that process but I just think it's something that was taught from the very beginning that God communicated to them the constellations and what he was telling them through that but you don't have a, uh, a source study for, for that do you? do what? the story Gospel from the constellations, or whatever. Do you have a source or any books on books on that? Yeah, yeah. The Gospel in the Stars. Um, I can't think of the author's name right now, but there's several books out by different authors. 
trying to explain the gospel and the stars. Now, some people were like, ah, I don't buy that. Well, that's like everything, you know. But I just think there's, I think, I really think there's something there. And I think that passage in Genesis uh, 15, you know, when he's telling him to count the stars, I think he's telling him to recount, explain. Look at the stars. Look at the messages here. And Abraham believed it. You know, it's kind of hard to understand him believing and becoming righteous if that's not what's going on there. Uh, Bob asks, do you see this olive tree language is connected in any way to the tree of life image in Revelation? I don't know, because I haven't taught on Revelation, I haven't got into that yet. You're the expert on Revelation. You should be telling us. Uh, no, no, I really don't know. I mean, the olive tree is, is an image of, of Israel, the, the true Israel, the people of God. So I don't know if that's connected with the tree of life in Revelation. Maybe Mike can answer that question for us. He's done a series on Revelation. Anybody else? David. So how does Christ fit into the analogy of the tree? If he's not the tree, he's the shoot from the stump. What's he going to like? I'm just trying to... Yeah, you, you know, here, let me let me caution you here. First of all, we can't press analogies too far, okay? But, you know, the Bible tells us he was a shoot in the tree, okay, out of the tree. So the promises were the ground. In other words, the promise was for Messiah, the coming of Messiah. You know, when he told Abraham, and you and your seed, he was referring to Christ. So Christ is the shoot of that tree through whom all the blessings. So, you know, maybe the Abrahamic promises are the root, and Christ is the trunk, you know? oh, right, so that's that's what kind of makes sense in my mind. Okay, if, if the tree represents true Israel, which he is, right, then Abraham is the roots. He's the trunk. The yeah, and then the branch of the ground right. into him. That's I could go with that. Okay. Yeah, I could <laughs> go with that. So then, basically, all the branches were chopped, and then some were grafted back in to Christ, the elect. Of right. Israel. Right. Well, the, the believers, I mean, through Old Covenant Israel, we always had believers, and they were part of that. You know, as soon as Christ came, they believed in him, and they were part of that tree. But the unbelievers. The remnant of branches left, and then Gentiles were grafted into the remainder. Yes. I guess. Okay. All right. That makes me feel better. <laughs> good. <laughs> this is a good way to do it. Let's, um, from now on, we'll just take a passage and we'll work it out as we go along because that's, you know, that's that's good. I I, I need to back up now and incorporate that in there, okay? <laughs> All right, let's get the band up here and let's close with the song. We want to sing Give Thanks. Because we have to be thankful that we were grafted in Okay, yeah, one question I got is, is Bullinger a reliable source for the gospel and the stars? Yes, he is, and he's one of the ones who's written books on that, Bullinger. So that's a good book on the gospel and the stars. Okay, let's sing.